0: Hello, and welcome to Tilt's Failed Scrooge podcast. My name is Andrew Hickey, and I write and present a podcast called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs, described by the New Yorker as a project which will eclipse every literary project in history, and so vast that it can only be compared to, say, the construction of the Oxford English Dictionary, and by Apple Podcasts user Bud Rocket 1 as moralistic woke nonsense delivered with all the excitement of an undertaker reviewing one's burial options. Tilt edits that podcast for me and has asked me to do an introduction to this episode as he's currently unable to record one. Indeed, he's been unable to record much at all this year. Without going into too much detail, he's had the worst year of his life by far and one of the worst years imaginable. Hopefully next year will be better. But before that terrible year happened. He had recorded an episode of his Scrooge podcast that hadn't yet been issued. There were a few technical problems with the audio, which isn't great at points. But it's coming out now as it features a very special guest. We hope it's worth the wait. When you think of geniuses, you might think of such figures as Mark Twain or Albert Einstein. And when I think of Twain and Einstein, my thoughts immediately turn to Michael Kupperman, one of the great geniuses working in the comic medium today. Michael Kupperman is a unique talent whose work is hard to describe, except in a way that draws all the joy and life from it, even though that joy and life permeates every panel. He creates humour comics such as his Tales Designed to Thrizzle, in which pitch-perfect pastiches of serious forms are hollowed out and filled with absurdist content, such as his noir detective duo Snake and Bacon. He also more recently created the stunning graphic autobiography All the Answers, a memoir of his complex relationship with his father, a former child star and prodigy, which made Publishers Weekly, Library Journal and NPR's lists of the best books of 2018, among many other awards. Kupperman's current work is mostly done on his Patreon, which both Tilt and I back, and I strongly recommend you do the same if you want to support a truly unique artistic voice. In this episode, recorded a year ago, Tilt and Michael Kupperman discussed the 1951 film Scrooge, featuring Alistair Sim who many consider the definitive Scrooge, in the title role. Their wide-ranging discussion also covers the early career of Patrick McNee, George Cole's experience as an evacuee, and why John Pertwee is not Tilt's favourite Doctor Who. We hope you enjoy it. The
1: 1951 Scrooge, as we had it in the UK, A Christmas Carol, as it was released in the US, it's generally, I think it's possibly the one that most people point to and say, this is it. It's not my go-to
2: version. Really?
1: Yeah, there are things in this that don't quite do it for me. Taking another look at it, it feels unusually maybe ahead of its time. It actually feels out of step with British culture in 1951. In 1951, was I'm still thinking of things like the Festival of Britain and the general atmosphere of, oh my God, we're still here. Ten years ago, <laughs> that was not a guarantee. We're still here. Whereas this would have been more in step ten years later with the British New Wave because this is the dark version dark as in the normal usage of that word, not the nerd usage of that word. This is the version that gets to the deprivation of the times. What about it calls to you? Well, I think it's
2: really strong. It's a really strong version. It's got an exceptional cast, some amazing performances Uh, Michael Hordern. as his partner, and the malevolence he has in their negotiating scenes always sticks out in my memory. And yeah, it really is about the time in a way that other productions didn't get. There's the um, costumes evolving; they're wearing the odd, uh, I think, Regency costumes in the in the flashback scenes. He also mentions, I noticed um, this time in the in this speech uh, about poorhouse and all that that exists for these poor people. I notice he mentions also the treadmill and a couple of other things. And I know now that treadmill was a punishment that they inflicted on poor people in the poorhouse. That was a variety of making them do physical labor that had no point deliberately, which is a kind of insanely cool thing to do. So they would have to, you know, press a wall or lift a weight or run on a treadmill. For no reason other than that it would tire them out and exert them. But there was nothing gained from it for anyone besides cruelty, punishing these people for being poor.
1: It gave rise to the prison slang of referring to the waters as screws, because they had similar useless labor in prisons. And there was this crank that you had to turn until you turned it a number of times. Yes. And one of the things the water could do is come and turn the screw so that the effort became
2: greater. Yes, it's incredible. Punishment just for the sake of punishment. The idea
1: being (laughs) was if we make being poor as unpleasant as possible, nobody will be poor. They'll all avoid it.
2: Yeah, and of course the most modern of these themes are still very, very pertinent today. The idea that you've got to make poverty as unpleasant as possible and then people will choose not to be poor anymore is uh, an incredible one. And very dishonest, since of course capitalism depends on certain People being victims for a head moral system to work,
1: and I suppose maybe that's one of the things that does kind of lock with nineteen fifty one. Nineteen fifty one, we're in the post-war consensus. We've had a Labour government, so it possibly is. If you then look at Dickens' time, it seems way more different than a world that had two world wars and looked and said, "Why? Why? There wasn't, you know, some moves after the first world war, and part of that was why." Are our soldiers so badly, badly malnourished? Why don't we have quite the fighting force we feel we deserve? And then Second World War, it's like, well, right. Now peace is going to be the norm. Let's get all the other good things in as well.
2: Right. Well, the film does end up with Scrooge's reform, but the answer to all the problems is a more benevolent capitalism, which takes more of an interest in people and does things for them. It's not to really overhaul the system, you know, from top to bottom. There's no call to socialism going on. It's uh, prosperity, but let's treat people humanely. This is
1: something of, um, it's not really a major studio. I don't think Renown Pictures were a major studio at the time. I'm just thinking if this had been made at Ealing, something a lot of people don't see about Ealing Studios is they were a very much a left-of-centre, Studio. I mean, Passport to Pimlico is all about unrestricted capitalism. When they find that this area of London doesn't have to have rationing or anything like that, it then becomes a dystopia of free market capitalism.
2: Oh, I haven't seen
1: that. It took me reading a book, um, Shepherd in Babylon, by Matthew Sweet, which is one of my Bibles, to realise that this theme keeps popping up in Ealing films. I mean, Kind Hearts and Coronets which is all motivated by the cruelty of one powerful family to one person. So talking of the cast, I understand 100% why people would think of Alistair Sim as THE Scrooge. Because he's quite over the top. There are certain actors who are like that. They're over the top, but they're still completely believable. Like James Cagney. I don't know if I've quoted it on this particular series, but... I often point to Austin Wells, who said of Cagney that you can't actually get away with acting that way in real life. But Cagney is always true. It's never false acting. He overacts, but that's a legitimate choice. And for someone like Dickens, Dickens writes larger-than-life characters. Dickens is a very exaggerated world that he lives in. And Alistair Sim just beautifully... <laughs> It's hard to it's hard to believe <laughs> Charles Dickens wrote the character of Scrooge without knowledge that Alice the Sim would one day exist.
2: Yeah, he plays it beautifully—the terror, the haughtiness first, and then the terror, and then the joy at finding himself still alive and having another chance. He really plays all of it to the utmost. It's, and some of these
1: really are awesome emotions point. that he generally doesn't get to show in his other work, because usually he's in comedies. I'm trying to think of anything else i've seen him in and there will be something there'll be something that's slipped to my mind that's just straightforward drama but i can't think of anything else Where yeah his fear is not there's no clowning because you know you could play scrooge's fear as something making him look a bit ridiculous but sims fear in this draws you in
2: yeah he really does
1: it's worth mentioning of course michael horden went on to play scrooge himself for bbc television I think it was 1977. Yeah, it's one of those... It's a multi-camera videotape show. Oh, interesting. And his Marley is John the Measurer. Uh-huh. And he... <laughs> John the is way too laid back. The bit in this film, when Scrooge has been so dismissive of the very idea of a ghost, and Horden lets out a shriek in the 1977 version, John the Measurer goes, Ugh. Oh to <sighs> just re- still reacts as if there's been a shriek.
2: That's amazing. I, I have to say, you know, I've, of course, been seeing John LeMessurier and things since I was a child. And it's only this moment that you've uh, taught me how to pronounce his name. I thought it was John LeMessurier all this time. No,
1: it's one of those. Also in this film, of course, is Hetty Jakes, which knowledge of... Francophone names what you'd think it would be Jacques, but no, it's so there does seem to be this period of defrancization that went through parts of British culture. And I think it's a little bit like the Channel Islands where you just you get English people with French names, but I think on the mainland they're a bit less forgiving. You say since childhood, let's talk about you for a moment. Cause I came to be aware of you because there was a copy of Issue 1 of Tales Designed to Thrizzle in the comic shop when I was just there one day getting my uh, usual order. I thought, that looks silly, I'll read that. And so I think of you as very American, reaching back into There's a very sort of first half of 20th century thing informing your work. But you lived in the UK for how long?
2: Well, for a couple of formative years when I was a child, and then we returned you know, for summers and whatnot, uh, a few times after that. So I was there in the mid-70s, at a time when just there was a lot to take in. Where we lived in Connecticut was very dull, so the contrast between that and Cambridge was very high. And, yeah, I watched uh, Doctor Who, I was a huge John Pertwee fan, and stayed aware of British culture after that.
1: Which then sort of makes sense with some of the parts of your humour... And I know you've worked with him. I, th- I find that there's sort of parallels between you and Peter Serafinovich. Yes. In the angles that the humor comes from. It's like, I can't, well, what? The idea that he's he completely out of left field. I find that in your work and his, that it's just like, I can't even sort of trace it back. You know, some, some even, you know, excellent comedy is like, oh, right. I see the thought processes, but with you and Serafinovich, like, ma!
2: Yeah. So and like,
1: ice cube down the back.
2: <laughs> Unfortunately, I think it kind of works against us in this, uh, in the modern times, because I think uh, meaning is the most important thing now in any media. And since a lot of what we do is about the dismantling of meaning for humorous effect, I think it's just not in.
1: Meaning that can be projected, meaning that can be explained afterwards in commentary tracks.
2: Or, you know, people like things that have a clear point to them. Something about it gives has some clear meaning, like some clear moral message, or you know something like that.
1: I'm very down on current British culture, and I do feel there's a big strand of. uh, Let me explain at length how subtle I'm being.
2: (laughs) They've really trashed it. It's it's incredible. I mean, there was so much exciting work coming out of there 15 years ago, and now it's yeah, it's not great. I mean, a lot of the people who were enthusiastic about my work in the early 2000s along the Peter, you know, they, they went in another direction. It's bizarre and sad to see.
1: See, I'm terribly sour about large chunks of British culture. I'm terribly sour about large chunks of modern culture. To be honest. And I try not to get into that place where I start decrying everything. But um, British culture is now gentrified. It appeals to a certain type of person who likes to explain why things appeal to them. I was reading a thing where somebody was talking about Peak TV. Now, Peak TV, they meant the U.S. and they were talking about the greater license that cable and streaming have allowed television programs as opposed to what was allowed on network television in the U.S. And unfortunately, as that happened in the U.S., there seems to be a U.K. commentary crowd who thought the same was true of the UK, that if television was better than it had ever been in the 2000s, 2010s, 2020s in the US, it must be the same for the UK. And it, it really isn't. That license was already there in British television. Oh, yeah. The stuff that could get done. I
2: think of the 70s as, as just an incredible peak of artistic achievement, personally. You know, the stuff that was being made in British TV was, was just exceptional.
1: There's some amazing stuff from the sixties as well, but it doesn't survive as well. Of course. But um we're way off topic, but I I will mention a show called The Corridor People. Oh Made yeah. I've television- seen, yes. Seen bits
2: of it, yeah, I
1: have. It would sound flippant to describe it as the Avengers on Acid, but it really is like <laughs> somebody <laughs> it really is like somebody tried to make the Avengers after ingesting a full dose of Sandoz Lysergic Acid diethylamide twenty five.
2: Well, you know, when my son was little, I, uh, I found all the, uh, cartoons from early 70s England that had been on either when I was there or just before. And I showed him those. I, uh, we didn't have, uh, you know, we didn't have cable TV and there wasn't streaming yet. And I just, I didn't want to expose him to most of the trash that was around. I mean, that, you know, what was that, uh, Tinky Bye Bye, uh. Oh,
1: Teletubbies,
2: yes. That, that stuff's fine. But, you know, I really, was glad that I could show him, you know, Mr. Ben, Chigley, Captain Pugwash, all those shows, these wonderfully gentle shows. And they're basically live theater. They're just paper, most of them paper being manipulated under a glass plane while one person does voices. They're really incredible.
1: There's a great sense of melancholy in many of those shows. Some of them, not a lot of the famous ones, but some of them are just way too creepy to like. There's a show called The Magic Fountain, which is full of sudden shock squelches of synth, and a boy travels back in time to witness a murder and is then projected back to his own time. There are the skeletons of the murder that he saw committed 500 years ago, and this thing was like going out at 5 past 12 in the afternoon. Yeah. There are a number of people working in British television for children in the seventies, who picked up MRGMs and went, "Hey, the kids are gonna love this," right? <laughs> Which we can allow to bring us back to Scrooge. Scrooge is so good. the the atmosphere, the the bit where he's just he's just walking down the steps of where he does business, and one of his debtors accosts him to get. It's just the look of that. It just tells you everything you need to know. The director of photography, I didn't bother to look this up, was uh, C.M. Pennington Richards, and he does a magnificent job. And actually, quite recently, I've watched a few of the films he went on to direct, including Double Bunk, Dentist on the Job, and Ladies Who Do. They're not (laughs) quite as dark. (laughs) I've been watching too many British B-movies recently, and I intend to continue watching too many British B-movies.
2: Uh, one I one I one I really like is um, it has different names, but it's uh, Number One on the Secret Service is one of the titles it's given. <laughs> Anything with John Pertwee as a vicar. Oh, where you go? <laughs> uh, it's so funny.
1: There are a few a few um, films of the seventies and eighties that seem to involve John Pertwee occasioning injury to his genitals and that appears to be one of them
2: it's so funny because he was the dashing hero, of course, of you know, my favorite science fiction show, but.
1: Well, you see, that's one of the issues I have with him in Doctor Who.
2: What, do you do?
1: Yeah, he's a dashing hero. And it's like, but the first two were not.
2: Were weirdos.
1: Yeah. And it's like, once that idea broke, it's like, well, you know, let's make him a bit, and, and I, I don't think he was meant to be the dashing hero. You don't cast the guy from the Navy lock if you're looking for a dashing hero. I think it was, so the producer of Doctor Who cast him, the outgoing producer of Doctor Who cast him, I think it was the BBC's head of drama who more worked on him and said, play the Doctor as yourself. Yeah. But I think once that, that's just me, you know, but once that kind of seal was broken, it couldn't really be resealed. And so, you know, we ended up, we then ended up starting up with young and pretty Doctors. That's just because I want all the Doctors to be as ugly and uncool as I am.
2: Yeah, but Peter Davison's whole thing was being ineffectual. He couldn't... There are
1: a couple of stories where... One, of course, is written by the guy who was the script editor for his first season. There are a couple of stories where Peter Davison has not been written to. It seems like once he was cast, too many writers started writing, well, who's playing? We know Peter Davison, right? Well, we know what he's like. He's. Whereas there are one or two stories where he's been written as an irascible old man and what he looks like isn't important he's just he's he's just kind of irritated and flippant and it would have been nice to allow him to perceive that but it, it didn't happen that way and that's it by that point he's he's a hero and then of course when we get Colin Baker nobody seems to know how to do a weirdo hero anymore <laughs> just they don't know how to do unlikable but likable
2: yeah i mean it really depends on the actor i, I don't know if uh... Neither of those actors had the had the power to do that. You need someone who can do that. You know, be unlikable, and likable, and really seem, like, weird. You know, Tom Baker did seem deeply strange. You know? See, I think Tom
1: Baker should have had something else building around him, because he sort of overpowers the part. It's been like, people say, oh, Brian Blessed will be. He's like, no, Brian Blessed's too Brian Blessed. You need to do a Brian Blessed thing for him. You need to build something else around him and i'm don't get me started on this i started a counterfactual on the alternate history forum where i basically recast all but three of the doctors and it's been two years now and i'm still writing it (laughs) and i can't stop (laughs) so right scrooge got to come back to occasionally it's perfectly fine to keep coming running away from it we must always come back to it. Let me bring up the cast list.
2: Yeah, some astonishing people in there.
1: Including uh, Miles Mallison as Old Joe. Miles Mallison was, uh, I believe he was a communist who was heavily into free love and open marriages. And he has this peculiar bird-like appearance. Ah, oh, Mervyn Johns. Now, Cratchit, I think, is not always the easiest art to find a balance. Have you watched many other
2: versions of this story? It's making me curious to watch more. I've watched a few over the years. You know, I have a son now, so I tried to find a good one to watch it, uh, to show him. I think this is this was, I thought, the best yes. one, along with the early 70s um, animated version, which I thought was really strong. There's some ah, really good ones. Of course, yes. There's a ton of garbage versions. I'm kind of curious to see the George C. Scott version, although I don't imagine he it's really some. great. I know I never have.
1: I really, really like it. That's my go to version. Oh, really? Because I think it probably makes the least number of changes. Frank Finley as Jacob Marley is in hell. There is nothing. It's not even suggested that it's some sort of purgatory. It isn't that. It's as bad as being in hell to him. And they put these kind of metallic contact lenses on so he doesn't look at anything. They don't deal with in the dialogue like they do in this, you know. You're not looking at it, but I see it nevertheless. But, yeah, I find it a really strong version. Very strange that David Warner is Cratchit in that. Oh, wow. Very un-David Warner, but he manages to bring it across the line. Because there's always the problem of being too pathetic, or not pathetic enough. Gene Lockhart in the 1938 version <laughs> doesn't look like his life is all that bad. But Mervyn Johns, yeah, he's, he's got a nice presence. Hermione badly as Mrs. Cratchit. Now, George Cole, of course. <laughs> Where goes Alistair Sim goes George Cole? I don't know if you know that George Cole was an evacuee, went to stay with The Sims, and then basically hung around ever since. So he was very much Alistair Sim's protégé. Almost adoptive son, and so he he's always turning in at things that Alice the Sim is in. But you can't really complain because he's got the chops. It would have been wonderful to see George Cole do his own take on Scrooge, but he he got typecast in the eighties as this wheeler. Do
2: you, you ever see the show Minder? Uh, wait, is that the one with um Dennis Waterman? yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think I saw an episode or two, yeah. it yeah. so was, was a
1: huge hit in its time and George Cole was the guy being minded.
2: Oh, right, yes, of course. Yes, his face is very familiar. Some of the people in this, I know their faces. Um, the guy who plays the younger, youngest version of Scrooge, his face is very familiar, but I don't know who that was. That's actually, if I had one complaint about this film, the complaint would be that he plays young Scrooge in all the scenes, and they needed a much younger. Oh yeah, Scrooge. That,
1: yeah th- we're talking. That's who we're talking about, George Cole.
2: Oh, that's George Cole. Okay, yes, yeah. They needed a, a young Scrooge for that first scene because it, he's visibly what in his twenties. There, you don't feel so bad for him being stuck at school alone. You know, it's clearly the scene is clearly about a much younger child, and that's the one uh, one decision the film makes that I don't agree with. You need a, a smaller child so you can feel bad about it.
1: Now for departures this contains something that I don't like in adaptations which is we see fezziwig getting screwed over. Mm-hmm. The story is written is not very joined up. We see fezziwig holding one of his annual christmas parties and then we're on to the breakdown of scrooge's engagement and that's it so we we don't need to know and I personally don't need to know what happened to Fezziwig. You know, okay, fine. He, you know, I guess he died or retired, then died. I don't need the story joining up that much.
2: Well, they took his business.
1: I have a bit in my notes here. Oh no, Jorkins! Jorkins is a completely original character to this film.
2: Which one's Jorkins?
1: He's the one who does the double dealing that then causes Scrooge and Marley to come in and.
2: Is he the one who says, you can send me to Botany Bay?
1: Played by Jack Warner, uh, famous in the UK as Dixon of Dot Green, who was a solid, good, honest copper who always knew best, and the series was actually created by Ted Willis, who was a former communist and eventual baron in the House of Lords. But a labour baron, it wasn't like he did a 180 on his beliefs. Once you look at that, you realize some of the stuff in Dixon of dot Green is, like, the policeman upholding the social contract. And he also created a Victorian police show called Sergeant Cork, which varies between uh, mildly progressive and abs- just pure straight-out prop. It's got a political compass somewhere around, around about Billy Bragg. So, yeah, the boardroom drama. Yeah, but it
2: gives you a chance to see them as aggressive bastards which you don't usually get in the uh, Christmas Carol story. But them really being, you know, kind of sleazy creeps.
1: It makes me wonder, uh, there's something in this story that's been completely turned inside out by the invention, uh, discovery, development of psychotherapy. This is written at a time when there were no Freudian reasons or Freudian excuses. And yet now, after a certain point, it seems just built for that kind of reading.
2: Recently, wasn't there a version with uh, Guy Pierce where uh, it was revealed <laughs> he was molested as a child?
1: It, was, it wasn't It was so much revealed as stuck in saying, there, oh, that'll get them talking. It's like three hours long, that version, and they managed to include almost less of the actual Dickens than any other version.
2: Oh, well, I couldn't believe there was a TV show called Dickensian with all the characters, like, frolicking together.
1: Yeah, it was, I think it was before the MCU, or it was it was, it was, was before people talked about it all the time, but yes, trying to make a Dickens universe.
2: Oh, incredible. I mean, a lot of it's because there's huge tax breaks for historical productions now. That's something the conservative government started up, right?
1: I think I might have mentioned this last time, but um, one of my favorite pieces of television is from a really full-blown sentimental airbrush Christmas special made by Yorkshire Television in the early to mid-70s. And there is like a 10, 15-minute sequence that is how many characters from Dickens can we shove into this tableau? So it's like Dickensian, but hyper-compressed.
2: So they just come in and wave or say They, a line they or... do.
1: They come in and chat. They come in might like, briefly interact. Barnaby rudge by some chestnuts. Mr. Jingle from Pickwick Papers has a conversation with Mr. Micawber. Mr. Micawber being played by Les Dawson, who's playing the part as W. C. Fields. <laughs> Scrooge is briefly seen, then briefly seen again, reformed, played by John Laurie from Dad's Army. So we, you know, we get the Scottish Scrooge, and then at the end, most of the characters, for instance, the Cromwells from whichever one the, are they Nick, Nicholas Nickleby David Copperfield sort of smushed in my head anyway they turn up with David Copperfield to arrive at Mr. Pickwick's Christmas party we've got James Hayter who played Pickwick in the 40s film also the world's first sitcom star I mention that every time I'll never stop Harry Fowler's back as Sam Weller so it's done on far less money uh, with far fewer concessions to good taste, but I I, I watch it every Christmas. It, and so that's how you do it, Dickensy, and just you pace it like laughing.
2: How did you find it? That stuff is so hard to find.
1: It was a bonus uh, item on a DVD collection of Les Dawson's uh, Yorkshire Television sketch shows, and the, the the boutique label that that has this sweetheart deal with ITV to to be allowed in. Uh, To get a lot of their less high-profile productions onto DVD, generally, where possible, use that to jam other stuff onto it as well. So if there's something they can find with a tenuous link that just gets something out of the archive, gets it in front of our eyes, they'll do it. So the history of British television has been kind of rewritten over the last 25 years Because we can now see a hell of a lot of it. We can now see a hell of a lot of the ITV side of the equation and realise that they they were just as likely to go avant-garde on us as the BBC. Oh yeah, I was looking at the cast, wasn't I? Patrick
2: Mcnee, of course, giving uh, one
1: line. This must be just before he went to Canada, because he went to Canada to work there. I think he came back to the UK hoping to use his Canadian experience to work behind the scenes. He'd been a television executive, I think, in Canada. And he ended up at ABC, whose head of drama was the Canadian Sidney Newman, who had taken a look at their show Police Surgeon, worked out what was wrong with it, filed off the original serial numbers, and uh, launched The Avengers. One thing to mention, going back and forth, one thing to mention with Marley, is we actually have that sequence where there are people trying to help this starving woman and her child.
2: Yes, that's quite uh, striking. There are all these uh, clusters of uh, desperate, rich ghosts surrounding this woman and her child and trying to throw money at them. And then at the uh, end of his appearance, Hordern joins them and uh, himself is trying to throw money at these uh, starving people with uh, no success.
1: One thing that sometimes think about this story is is marley less tortured after scrooge is redeemed we know from the story that scrooge never sees another ghost again it's just mentioned at the end there's a pun about no further intercourse with spirits taking the pledge but I imagine, i don't know did dickens ever think why has marley been given this chance and what happens now that it worked does Marley get to just sort of hang around Scrooge, seeing Scrooge being helpful and thinking, phew, or is he still being horrifically tormented?
2: Yeah, I don't know. It's it's I hadn't thought about that. But what I actually did think about watching this version is, had he seen the ghosts himself and ignored them? Because he seems to, before he dies, know yeah. what's going on.
1: Yeah, this is a a big addition. It's not in the original story, but I think it's very effective. We see Marley's last night on Earth and he's somehow suddenly aware. Another one that I like to think about is what happened to Scrooge's father? Something very suggestive in fans' line. Father is so much kinder than he used to be that home is like heaven. Is there a history of Scrooges being visited by ghosts?
2: Why these (laughs) ghosts just make their rounds? Are we
1: supposed to take something from that that's like, here's a lesson Scrooge didn't learn, he didn't notice that his father had been able to change from what he was? Right. Uh, The George C. Scott version has we, we actually get to see Scrooge's father on camera and the indication is that he's not all that different and I think it weakens the story as a result. I mean, part of his thinking is in the George C. Scott version, which I've done uh, on on one of my other shows years ago with Gary when we did a show called Jaffa Cakes for Proust, he says to Scrooge that he I think he's allowed to stay for three days and then he will be apprenticed to Mister Fezziwig. And I thought if you want to read in Scrooge's father becoming kind, it's like I've got you an apprenticeship with the nicest man in town, right? And yeah, it's it, on the one hand we're reading things that aren't there, but I like how this. Version had had a sit and a think about what was Marley really like. And um, was it possible that, you know, Marley had yeah, Marley had let a chance pass by.
2: Yeah, that he'd had a vision. It is suggested.
1: Because it's Christmas Eve. He dies on Christmas Eve, so
2: Yeah, and he's saying, you know, to his housekeeper you know, He must know, you know, I think theres much time. It's clear he wants to he's already got the message he's going to pass on later as it goes.
1: But no, I find the whole thing Showing as the rise of Scrooge and Marley less germane to the themes of the book, but if you want to make a case for them, I am all ears.
2: Well, as far as the movie goes, it's a great—you know—it's a great scene them, them being real creeps. You know, <laughs> you don't usually get that. You don't normally you see Scrooge chiding his workers and being hostile, but you don't actually see him being an operator. And in this this version, you do him and Marley both. And Marley Corden's great during that scene.
1: It's interesting that um, he acts one way when he when Marley's a ghost, he's full of remorse. He barely moves during the death scene, understandably. And but so when we see this bit, it's actually a new side to Marley because he's so smug.
2: Yeah, yeah, he he really is. Without saying, I think very much or anything, uh, he just really plays it really wrong. It's He's so slimy. He looks so pleased with himself.
1: Yeah. I guess I just kind of, I want it slightly left to my imagination as to was Scrooge creep or was he joyless? I, I always imagine Scrooge being weirdly joyless in everything and so he might sign the papers that make him a fortune but he's just, come on, give me the pen. There.
2: Yeah, no. Don't stand around. In this version he enjoyed it. He already had some joy in his life. And it was screwing people over in business. And I think in that in some ways that's the most modern scene then, you know, in the movie.
1: There's another scene added involving the death of Scrooge's sister and Scrooge getting up and walking out before she dies and not hearing her say look after Fred. Right. Fred's another character who's less explored I don't mean in this version, I mean generally. Fred has no bitterness towards Scrooge.
2: Yeah. It's true.
1: And again, it raises in my mind how slow was Scrooge's descent into this guy we love to hate? Has Fred at some point seen a side to Scrooge that has since gone away?
2: Well, I mean, this Scrooge, you know, he's not a pleasant person, certainly, but he's not malevolent. He's just kind of resisting all human interactions or uh, levity whatsoever. Especially for a young person, I can see seeing him as just a kind of humorous, but not especially troubling figure.
1: Yes, that is one of the things that he he often communicates, is that, you know, nobody suffers by his humors but himself. Oh, he is a most comical fellow. I think that's the line that keeps coming up. Do we get to see Fred's party in this? I actually did watch this, but...
2: Yeah, there's a little bit of...
1: uh... It's just, it's interesting they keep different versions of the thing change what game is played at Fred's party. In the story, it's effectively a version of 20 Questions. But its I've seen it change to other things, like for some reason they're playing a thing called The Minister's Cat.
2: Yeah, and this one I think it's just a minute of them uh, saying things over the drinks. So there, there's another very familiar actor in this scene. His face, but not his name.
1: Right. Challenge accepted. Oh, there's a character in this called Mr. Snedrick. There's another character in this called Mr. Groper. Oh, Richard Pearson is Mr. Tupper, um, who in the original story is implied to be something of a Mr. Groper himself. I think there's I don't know, blind man's buff, something about that. Anyway, everybody keeps noticing that Tupper keeps going to the same person. Yeah, Richard Pearson's been in. He's got a very, he's got a full face, very amiable looking. I think if he has something that's particularly well known today. Uh, He was the voice of Mole in the stop motion Wind in the Willows made by, I think, Thames with Cosgrove Hall that had Michael Horden as Badger. Yeah, there's just too much stuff here to pick one out. My mum always says he was never out of work.
2: No, he did a lot.
1: So because we spend so much time in the past, I think we get a short shrift of the present. And there's another thing in here. I find this version is not very, very Christmassy. Now, the thing is to be very, very Christmassy. It would really have to be anachronistic. It would have to show an 1843 with decorations outdoors. On Christmas Day 1843, as I found out in a documentary presented by Griffey's Jones, Times published it regular edition. Christmas as we know it is partially an invention of this very story. Uh, Dickens was part of a larger movement. I think 1843 was also the issuing of the first Christmas card. There was this idea of let's get back to Christmas. I think to them Christmas they think they possibly saw maybe as a Tudor thing. When the ghost of Christmas present appears, the lighting is still as natural. He's sitting by the fire, but it's only lit by the firelight. There's still even though he's surrounded by Christmassy items and food and things like that, he's still just there in a room. It's still naturalistic if it's not realistic. And I think that would have been a nice place to sort of light it unnaturally, have things glittering a bit. I mean, who am I to, to tell these people how to do their adaptation? But I think it's one of the film's strengths becomes temporarily one of its weaknesses.
2: I think it's funny because in the so many uh, the American versions, increasingly, what you get is that it's not the idea that he's he does business too much and manipulates other people and is unkind to them. It's that he doesn't like Christmas, which I think is yes. a hilarious interpretation. I actually did a comic about this where the ghost just <laughs> beat him until he becomes Christmas's biggest booster and is you know surrounded by snow globes and Santas. And, but yeah, the American message increasingly in the versions just becomes he, he doesn't like Christmas. Then he gets all these ghosts that scare him, and then he does like Christmas.
1: It's a way of ignoring the...
2: Troubling message. I mean, I keep wondering, has there ever been a conservative version which flips this, and has, you know, the ghosts are really messing with him, and he was in the right all along?
1: People have made the thing, Oh well, you know, he's not forced to, he, he's given the free choice to be charitable, and it's like, no. that's The whole point of the story is he has no... Moral choice, whether to be good or bad.
2: This reminds me. Have you watched some of the more far-fetched versions? Like, have you seen *An American Carol*? I refuse to watch that. <laughs> and I mean,
1: I've watched a *Valentine Carol*. So
2: <laughs> I watched that some years ago. That was that was quite something.
1: By the way, speaking of your work, uh, earlier on you used the phrase "desperate rich ghosts." That sounds like one of your, like you know, somewhere there just next to uh, *The Hunchback in the Hydrant* or something. No, I've watched, one year I watched about 50 versions. So I have watched some...
2: So you've watched, like, where a TV show would do an adaptation of a Christmas show or whatever?
1: Yes, I've done that too, because the main podcast I've been associated with is a thing called The Sitcom Club. And one Christmas we did look at Christmas episodes that imitate the structure of A Christmas Carol. Did another podcast called Jaffa Cakes Priest. that was about everything other than sitcoms. And we did two different looks at versions of his Christmas Carol, and that then gave birth to this. That I thought I want to look at version after version after version. <laughs> Even since starting up, I've bought a couple of DVDs to get hold of particularly obscure versions. Mm. I get confused because there's a version with Frederick March as Scrooge and Basil Rathbone as Marley. That is, I think, is a musical with really, really, really terrible songs. One of them is just, What will I do for my girl this Christmas? <laughs> what will I do for my girl? And it's just that. It's, and then it goes to the other, the, the woman, and she's, What will I get my boy for? <laughs> no, there's like three words in this entire song.
2: Was this a TV, TV production?
1: Yes, but then there was a musical version with Basil Rathbone as Scrooge. And then there was a short version with Basil Rathbone as Scrooge, introduced by Frederick March. And that version is about 20 minutes long. And when Scrooge is visited by the ghost, he's taken to places with no sets, just smoke. Even the present, even so the Cratchits just have, they have a door (laughs) frame and a table and smoke everywhere. Bob Cratchit is played by the actor Tuck Townley, which cheers me up a great deal because I just like saying talk townley," and he does turn up in a lot of old British stuff, so that indicates why that version might have been made. I, I found that that version I could find through um, Riff uh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There are a lot of versions, and I've tried to see as many as I can, and I'm not sure there's a version so bad I wouldn't watch it once as long as it's actually an adaptation of A Christmas Carol.
2: Right. Have you gone after all the old uh, radio versions, too?
1: Oh, no, because I'd never stop them, would I? I, I, Yeah, I do need to listen to Lionel Barrymore, because the the MGM one from 1938 was meant to be Lionel Barrymore, and he wasn't able to do it, and so Reginald Owen did it with these terrible false cheeks. And that is what you would expect from an MGM version of A Christmas Carol. (laughs) It's Everything is fluffy. If it's not fluffy, it's shiny. If it's not shiny, it's a member of the cast. And there's money all over the screen. But it suffers from an ineffective Scrooge, but it wasn't meant to be him. Right. Yes, uh, the 1971 animation, I think we can mention that here, which because that's also an Alistair Sim version. That's possibly the... I'm, I'm sorry for using the word again. That's possibly the
2: darkest... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's, ver- it's really, really something
1: And despite being something like 10 minutes long, it manages to include something that's missing from most versions, which is the Ghost of Christmas Present takes Scrooge around Britain to see lots of different people celebrating Christmas even people whose circumstances, trawlers at sea, lighthouse keepers miners why it's important to them it's
2: really an extraordinary version. I haven't watched it in a little while, but uh, the drawing, the way it yes it moves around, it's just really an incredible piece of work.
1: It's the only version I've seen that tries to do the Ghost of Christmas Past, more or less as Dickens describes the ghost. The animation has a female ghost. All the ghosts are male in the original story. But Dickens describes the character going out of focus. In sort of ways that the image becomes multiplied, yeah, and being like a child but also being old. So yeah, to say that there really wasn't any time to do things, it's very impressive. For
2: it's incredible. I think how much uh, Dickens is in there. Yeah, and it's um, during the seventies was really the time when you could a lot of the animation was about drawing, which uh, it never was before or since. But uh, there was so much great animation produced during that decade that was about the drawing, showing the drawing and the was act of drawing, even including some of those shows I mentioned. And uh, this is an incredible example of that.
1: I don't know if it's something to do with, in some ways, it seems like post-psychedelia, where there's certain fashions in animation to do things a little bit more complicated to capture the vibe that's going through. We then get into a storybook style of animation that's grown out of that. So it's just as ornate as attempts to do animation with a psychedelic base.
2: I don't. Yeah, I don't know if I feel if it's psychedelic or just uh, kind of using the drawing to imitate, you know, kind of filmic modern editing. It's really interesting.
1: And of course we have Michael Horton again in that version. Good heavens. John Sims as Mrs. Cratchit. It's Melvin Hayes as Bob Cratchit. Melvin Hayes played Bob Cratchit in the uh, Let's Get All the Dickens oh. characters <laughs> we can in 10 minutes.
2: <laughs> oh,
1: those are two people who would be superb playing the same parts in live action. There's a strange thing. They changed the fate of Scrooge's fiance. I think Christmas present shows Scrooge where his fiance is now, but in this version, she's tending to the sick become some sort of nurse and i'm curious why they brought about that change in the story as is what scrooge has shown is her family life she's got a nice husband and too many children and she's obviously living her best life as far as she's concerned and scrooge realizes this could have been his family you see again it's interesting Instead of seeing a busy, bustling household, we're again brought into the darkness, the deprivation.
2: But maybe that is where the, the message of the time comes in. And it's uh, repeatedly about pumping others.
1: Oh, yes, it's definitely. I think it's definitely to do with thematic unity rather than knowing better than Dickens. I don't have any notes about Christmas Yet To Come, so I think they do a perfectly straightforward. Version of it, and yeah, we get to see Miles Mallison with a oh, bird like face.
2: You don't really see the figure just as a shrouded figure and as a hand. Mostly,
1: right? To be honest with everybody, normally when I'm talking about these things, I actually have the version I'm talking about playing on the television. But today we got a warning saying California's power grid is overloaded, so turn off everything that's not <laughs> necessary. And I thought, well, I guess guess the Blu-ray player isn't a necessary thing to have turned on all the TV. So I'm shuffling around in the dark a little bit more than usual.
2: There's also the shocking moment where, you know, the uh, Christmas present shows the two children.
1: Yes, again missing from a lot of
2: versions. Ignorance and want.
1: I don't think those characters really quite as optional as most versions think. Let me think. So they're in this, they're in the George C. Scott version, they're in the Patrick Stewart version from 1999, they're in the Jim Carrey version from 2009, and they're in the Kelsey Grammer version from 2001, that is otherwise big, sure busy TV. <laughs> it's everything you want in a crass commercial version. All
2: right, now I'm curious.
1: And... If you can tune into that, and also the fact that when Scrooge was a boy, everybody still dressed like it was the 1840s, that version is fine. (laughs) It's been interesting going through so many different versions and finding that a lot of the time the jovial nature of Christmas present doesn't come through in version after version.
2: Mm, Yeah.
1: In the George C. Scott version, it was supposed to be Leo McKern. And he was unavailable and it ended up being Edward Woodward. Oh boy. Uh, You've seen Callan, yeah?
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He
1: does do the jovial thing, but those points when he turns his ire on Scrooge.
2: Yeah, I imagine he's a bit menacing.
1: Yes. And uh, like in the um, Albert Finney version, there's a hectoring quality to Kenneth Moore, as there was in many... I I, I did that version a couple of Shows ago, uh, with a friend who uh, coined the terms Dickens Van Dyke for a certain kind of jolly <laughs> period drama. That's like you're making this way more colourful. It's well, it's a curious thing. It's you know making the Victorian age look like the golden age for everybody.
2: Yeah, well, the Quality Street Tim uh, approach.
1: It was a BBC version of David Copperfield with Arthur Lowe as MacAlba. And I think a criticism would come from within the BBC that they look like a bunch of Toby Jugs wandering around. <laughs> <laughs> I think every decision Alistair Sim takes as an actor in the last scene is the correct decision. And it's a hard balancing act, I think, for some people to convincingly be the person, the, sc- the two Scrooges at the beginning. Become who Scrooge is at the end, and have it be persuasive that this is the same person. And Sim manages to carry it. But one little thing, I think this might be the only version that sticks to it, is when Scrooge tells the boy to go and bring the turkey. The boy goes, Walker. I, I'm like, fa- was, was that a thing you said in the Victorian times when they, when you thought somebody
2: was messing with you? What did he say,
1: Walker? Walker, but, you know, W-A-L-K-E-R, because Walker, that is something that has been, I think, otherwise lost to history.
2: Yeah. A few years ago, I read my uh, son, uh, E.L. Nesbitt, uh, trilogy, uh, you know, Phoenix on the Carpet, uh, Five Children and the it, uh, Story of the Amulet. At some point, she lists, you know, the famous men of this age that will be remembered forever. But of course, yeah, one or two, you know, yes, you would have heard of now, possibly if you had an interest in history. A couple more I'd heard of because I'm a weirdo who reads old stuff. You know, and then the others were just completely obscure names. A one ago
1: I managed to meet, as was nearly oh, 20 years ago, I managed to meet an interview Jenny Agatha and she wanted to get a film off the ground about Edith Nesbitt, because I think Edith Nesbitt lived in a menage artois. I think there was a play about her in a strand called The Edwardians. Yeah, the, I would be that The BBC then managed to mostly, mostly wipe all the colour versions. I might be being unfair because everybody, white stuff, even Granada and Granada have a hell of a tape archive. But it seems to be the BBC and ATV who do the, the most. It's like, wow, you had to go out of your way. Ah, 1972. Yes, there was an episode about... Edith Nesbitt, and there was one about Marie Lloyd, Horatio Bottomley, Conan Doyle, Baden-Powell, Lloyd George, and I don't know who Daisy is about. Oh, it's about one of the mistresses of Edward VII, but weren't we all?
2: And it's not available anywhere?
1: Is there anything I haven't let you say that you wish to say about this particular version?
2: I don't think so. What you were just saying about Sim, it's very true. At the beginning is this kind of unwavering stare His rhythms are completely different from at the end of the movie, where he's kind of wooing people with his eyes and chuckling at himself. He really transforms completely. Apart from that, no, I I don't have much else.
1: If people have had their curiosity sufficiently piqued about you by this podcast, where can they find more of your work?
2: Well, you know, on Amazon.com or whatever. (laughs) It's a bleak world we live in.
1: See, I'd recommend the comedy stuff like Tales Designed to Thrizzle. Which volume has Quinception there? Is that volume one or two?
2: I think that's volume two. I yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was fun. I want to, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated actually, the St. Uh, Peter stuff. The fascination stayed with me because I see with it as a link. Oh, yes! Okay, I'm sorry. I have one more thing about the movie to say. The incredible uh, mechanical dolls that tiny Tim is looking through the window at and when he's first shown in the movie they were on loan from someone and it's in the credits they were uh, genuine dolls and they're really something especially the the one that's a female figure uh, she's supposed to be like a some exotic I think possibly Asian figure who's what is she doing is she playing with a snake yes it's a snake she's like a snake charmer with exposed breasts, it's really wild. Yeah, it's part of that. Um,
1: British film had its limits and its topics it didn't like to stray into. It had its figures who would rather th- certain things weren't being said. But British film stays pre cord for a very long time. As just occasionally things, I, you know, I watch all these old British B movies, I watch them with my wife. And just occasionally she'll go, Whoa! because we're watching a film from 1940 and somebody who says something or do something that's just much, much closer to the edge than would have been allowed in an American film. It's not a matter of pitching American culture against British culture, but I do feel like I have to sort of keep fighting for British culture. I imagine a lot of people, even well-educated people who think of themselves as Anglophiles, would have a picture in their minds of British culture and British television culture as being more staid.
2: Well, of course, again, I I lived there in the early, mid-70s and I remember British culture as fairly raunchy, especially compared to here and now. In uh, the Cambridge Town Square, I remember there was a theatre on one corner that showed, you know, more racy stuff and there was a huge billboard for the uh, Alice in Wonderland musical, which um, I know would have been in a very edited form from the more explicit versions, but uh you know, and there were the the postcards everywhere, and you know, some re- a really more sexualized atmosphere in print media and stuff too.
1: In the mid sixties, Groucho Marx came to the UK to do a version of "You Bet Your Life" and was kind of told, "Innuendo will only get you so far." It had to be told you can you can go a lot farther than you can in the in the US. So be aware that. that's, that's the audience might not be. The audience have different boundaries.
2: Yeah, I mean it's true. If you go back in American culture, I've been look. I look sometimes at old newspapers, and up through like the war, the newspapers themselves are very rough sized. You know, in a, in a, to a level that would be unacceptable, now, completely unacceptable. It's really interesting to watch these things come and go in culture, and and where it's allowed. Like in the mainstream culture now, certain things are allowed and certain things are. You can see in the olden days these pockets of stuff that were really feverish, you know, to look at
1: and be around. So I've mentioned some of your humorous work, and of course you, a few years ago, did the, how would we how would we call it, biography? Uh, all the Answers, which is, it's about your father, but it's about you, and it's about...
2: I think of it as a, the term I came up with is graphic auto-noir. Because it's uh, a thing where you uh, you know investigate something and find out unpleasant things about yourself,
1: and it is it's a very powerful book, and partially because it's drawn in a similar style to your humorous work, uh, but it's still appropriate. But in some ways, having read all that, it kind of it kind of grounds me for some of the stuff. It's like I'm I'm used to this world, the way you represent popular culture in the first third of the 20th century.
2: Right, someone wrote a thing about the book a, a year or so ago. It was very smart, I thought, where they they said I kind of didn't let the reader experience the pleasure. It's not like about how exciting that showbiz was. It's it's true. It, it kind of it's what the book became because it's uh, you know what the story is was the frustration of you know being on the outside and that this is someone who never enjoyed it even when he was with you know. People you'd think of now as amazing stars like Orson Welles or Marlene Dietrich. So it's just, uh, yeah, it's more about it as a kind of punishing experience, a claustrophobic experience.
1: Well, thank you very much for coming on the show.
2: Yeah, no, thank you.
1: And if, if you ever want me to fix you up with any really, you know, really dreadful outre version of a Christmas carol, just let me know. I keep them on a little memory stick that shaped like a Christmas tree.
2: You know, that is a tempting offer. If I can't find some of the ones discussed <laughs> tonight, I will be back. Yes. Michael Kaufman, thank you very much. Thank you.